Welcome everybody to another episode of Taxel Insiders. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Seidensticker. I'm CEO of Taxel Resources. And with me today, I've got Matt Aby. Matt is with uh, Nelson Mullins and, and Nelson Mullins is, is one of the few, I'll say attorney firms uh, that, that specialize in tax sales or at least have a specialty in tax sales, uh, which is unique and, and highly advantageous in this industry. I guess, uh, Matt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Good to see you again. Likewise, likewise, I, I guess glad or not glad, I guess we'll, we'll kind of dive into some of that. Um, I know um, you've been uh, appointed you know, by NTLA to kind of investigate this this uh, Supreme Court case and and um, may I just let it turn it over to you. But as far as my knowledge goes, this, this court case was started in Minnesota, really specific to um, a single um, property that you know was um, you know foreclosed on due to delinquent taxes um, has gone through several different um, levels of court and is now sitting at the Supreme Court level, right? Um, ultimately, trying to decide something that is pretty impactful for the industry. But uh, why don't we start with that? Can you give us uh, a quick background of of how we got to where we're at, and what this is all about? Yeah, this is uh, the case name is Tyler versus Hennepin County. Um, it is based out of Minnesota. Um, Mrs. Tyler sued not just for herself, but on behalf of a class of property owners that are affected by Minnesota's uh, tax uh, in rim tax uh, foreclosure process. Um, Minnesota uses a, uh, a forfeiture process um, where roughly five years after delinquency occurs, the absolute title to the property forfeits to the state. Um, uh, and the, the local county will uh, then sell the property um, after bringing it up to code and making sure um, the property is habitable, uh, they, can, they can sell it. Um, what, uh, what a lot of people don't know about the process in Minnesota is that uh, there are all kinds of protections in place to try and avoid some sort of forfeiture. Um, as you know from, from talking with a bunch of tax collectors, uh, the last thing they want to do is sell the property. Um, what they really want to do is find a way to, to help um, people in their uh, in the stay in their properties by paying the taxes, redeeming the property, um, doing whatever they can to avoid a, a tax sale or a forfeiture. Um, but ultimately, there's got to be some finality in the process, and, and Minnesota law sets that uh, final step as uh, forfeiture, um, so that the county can can get it back onto uh, the the tax base and the tax rolls as a, a property that's used either commercially or residentially um, and is is a beneficial part of the community. So um, what happened in this case is uh, Miss Miss Tyler um, owed a couple thousand dollars in um, in back due property taxes. Um, the county then added as was required under statute certain penalties and interest uh, and, and costs associated with the tax sale process. So that the uh, total delinquency was roughly $15,000. Um, the county then, at the end of that five-year process, uh, when there was the, the forfeiture that occurred, um, then fixed up the property and, and sold it to a third party for about $40,000, creating a surplus or an overbid or an excess proceeds of roughly uh, $20,000, $25,000 which um, the Ms. Tyler, on behalf of herself and others, 
is claiming to have a property interest in. She claims that this, uh, this equity that she has is a protected property interest under Minnesota law, and it's something protected under the federal constitution from being taken without the ability to get it back. So essentially what she wants is she wants the surplus proceeds, regardless of how much it costs the county or the state to, uh, to sell the property at tax sale, um, enforce the taxes, fix up the property to make sure it is back up to code. She wants the, the surplus that she claims is her equity in the property. Um, and of course, notwithstanding all the notices and ability that she had to redeem the property or sell it and protect that interest in it. Um, she's represented by an entity called Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, Pacific Legal Foundation uh, is uh, a group that has um, researched uh, what they call equity theft uh, around the country. They say there are about uh, 12 to 13 states in the, uh, in the country that don't give uh, taxpayers the, the right to claim the equity in their house uh, if it's sold for or forfeited as part of an in-rim tax foreclosure process. Um, they brought another lawsuit out of Nebraska that was brought, uh, it was a class action about the same style as this one out of Minnesota that went up to, uh, they requested the Supreme Court hear that case around the same time. Um, and the court didn't act on that case and instead took Miss uh, Miss Tyler's case. Um, the she's raising two claims uh, that that first the, um, the the sale and forfeiture of her property without returning the surplus uh, and her equity to her is a taking of a condemnation uh, or or akin to eminent domain of her property, and it's a taking without just compensation. So she claims that the compensation that she's entitled to is the equity um, and that that's a protected property right under both Minnesota law and the uh, United States Constitution. Because um, as, as we know, uh, the government usually cannot go out and just uh, build a roadway across your, your, uh, where your house is without paying you for, uh, for that land. Um, she's trying to expand the concept of what a property interest is uh, under the takings clause in order to protect her surplus uh, or, or equity in the property. So that's the first argument that she's raising. She's also claiming um, that the tax sale was an excessive fine. Um, and she goes back to the fact that she only owed about uh, a couple thousand in actual property taxes that were delinquent um, and that the property ultimately sold for uh, about $40,000. And she claims that's an excessive fine under the U.S. Constitution, um, and it's, it's not, not permitted. Um, of course, in making that argument, she ignores the, the numerous attempts uh, that the county had uh, to go back and, and try and get her to satisfy the delinquent taxes uh, or redeem the property in order to, to avoid this, uh, this forfeiture, like I said, as a last result in, in a five-year process. Um, so those are the arguments she raised. The district court, which is the, the trial court in, in the federal system, uh, dismissed her case, um, said that there wasn't a claim as a matter of law. Um, the appellate court, uh, the Eighth Circuit, uh, agreed with that um, and ruled that there, there wasn't a takings claim because the equity or surplus proceeds is not uh, a recognized property right under Minnesota law, um, and so it could not be a taking and then ruled that because this, it, this dealt with uh, a remedial uh, tax collection scheme, 
it was not uh, not a fine under the U.S. Constitution. Um, she petitioned uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court she, in a process called certiori, and which is just a, a long way of saying that the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't have to hear every single case that is presented to it. It has discretion about whether or not to, uh, to tell the court below um, that it wants to hear the case. And it does so very rarely. Uh, it, it certainly does. It's certainly very rare in tax sale cases. There are not a ton of tax sale cases um, before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and it, it decided to take this case. Uh, it's going to be heard. Uh, briefing is going on now. Um, the uh, Ms. Tyler has filed her brief. Um, and uh, soon, Hennepin County and its, uh, its treasurer will file, I believe it's like the end of the month, will file its, its brief and response. And then the parties will, will argue the case before the U.S. Supreme Court um, on uh, April 25th. And we would expect the decision sometime this summer, um, usually the end of June, uh, beginning of July, roughly, um, for a case argued around this time. We, and and the, the parties are, are asking the court, you know, they're attacking this from very different directions. Obviously, the county wants to uphold its tax collection mechanism. Um, it believes in the due process protections that are in place for uh, people like Ms. Tyler, uh, believes that it's giving them proper notice, believes that it's giving them a lot of different options to avoid um, losing their interest in the property. And it's through essentially the inaction of the taxpayer that causes the, the sale or forfeiture of the property. Um, and so they're arguing that it's just not, they're, they're essentially arguing with the courts uh, and the Supreme Court should agree with the courts below that there's no uh, property right in equity or, or surplus proceeds that's protected under the, uh, the takings clause of, the, of uh, uh, the Constitution and that there's no excessive fine here because it's a remedial tax that, uh, that's being levied um, against Ms. Tyler and others. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that uh, we're writing a brief for the NTLA, and we, we are. We're, we're writing what's called an amicus brief or a friend of the court brief. Um, and the amicus brief is intended to uh, share the, the thoughts um, and the experience that the National Tax Lien Association and other groups have in this arena. Um, as you know from, from the work that you do and the, the podcast as well, there are a million different types of tax sales across the country. Um, it, not only do you have uh, different uh, tax sale schemes and, and styles and methods that vary from state to state, um, but you even got some states that have multiple different methods, or you've got some counties that, that do it different than other counties. And municipalities, like the larger municipalities, might do it differently from some rural uh, county. So um, it's, it's really a... a uh, the different schemes are, are out there in such a way that, that this case could have uh, implications across a number of different types of tax sales. And uh, the Supreme Court should be very careful not to, they could, uh, they could paint a very broad uh, rule in this case, uh, paint with a very broad brush and have implications uh, across the entire nation and the entire industry. And so we're, we're hoping to, as a part of our amicus brief, um, just outline the different types of tax collection methods that are out there and, and urge the court to, to be very careful with the way that it looks at this issue because it, it could have uh, very big implications for a lot of yeah. different states, 
not just those ones that uh, uh, the Pacific Legal Foundation and Ms. Tyler have highlighted in their uh, uh, in their brief. Yeah, so I guess a couple things I want to to highlight that you mentioned, Matt, is um, you know, at first blush, right? When you say I only own two thousand dollars, right? But you say now I owed at least fifteen, right? I think it's important to remember it didn't jump from two to fifteen overnight, right? It's it was two plus some fees plus interest, and um, I think what you point out, which is rare, I guess, um, and I've, I've interviewed attorneys all across the country and have learned a lot about the the process, but a five year um, delinquency before forfeiture is is actually quite long compared to many states. I mean, there are states that may it may go longer, right, depending on on what the the lien holder decides to do. But typically, it's much much shorter before that forfeiture takes place. So I think that's that's key to to point out. And I think the other thing that you I think you're going to get into, but I definitely want to dive into a little further, Matt. Is is it you know this starts in Minnesota, but it like you said, it has a much larger potential impact, right? Depending on on what the court says. So can you can you uh, dive into that a little more of like what exactly the implications and impact you know could be? Absolutely. Um, let, let me touch first on on the point that you made about the uh, uh, the amount going from a couple thousand to fifteen. You're right; it's not overnight. Um, Minnesota's uh, statutory scheme adds that on over time. Um, and if you think about it, the county is has a budget shortfall that it's filling with the the tax sales. Not not just Hennepin County, but counties across the country have tax sales in order to fill. Uh, somebody that is not paying their property taxes um, and they have to get that revenue from elsewhere. And so the, uh, the interest and penalties and costs that are added on, um, those usually would be at a roughly a market rate for what uh, a county would have to go out to, uh, to in order to, to make up that shortfall. So it's not something that occurs overnight. The, the taxpayer gets noticed throughout the process. Um, both in this county and, and in others across the country. Um, and there are ways that they can uh, they have rights of first refusal or rights to redeem all the way through the process to avoid um, that amount getting uh, too high too fast um, and not being something they can come back from. So, um, so that, that was the first point. The, the second point as far as uh, how it might impact some of the other states um, you don't know. It's, it's always tough to read the tea leaves with the, the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, you've got nine justices that come from uh, different backgrounds and different experiences as far as uh, what, what their practice areas were when they were uh, practicing attorneys. Um, I doubt that, that any of them really did a lot of tax sale work. I, I doubt that they uh, were, were folks uh, representing investors and whatnot. Um, and so they're going to be looking at this from a, from a different angle than you or I might uh, and, and might not think about how um, one minor change when we're talking about one state out of 50 and, and, and coming down with some sort of rule that says, oh, yes, this is a property right that is subject to the taking analysis. Um, that could have implications for tax sales across the country and could really then legislatures uh, in every state scrambling to try and tweak their process a little bit to, to bring it up to uh, bring it up to the standards that the Supreme Court might impose. Um, what I think is interesting is that the um, United States government, uh, through the Solicitor General, filed a brief uh, earlier uh, this week that essentially uh, it's an amicus brief as well, a friend of the court brief, 
that essentially doesn't take a side. It says we're in support of neither party. We're not opposing either party, but let me uh, just share with you our, our thoughts from the federal government. And the brief was very careful in the way that it talked about um, how tax sales and tax collection uh, would be considered a taking under the takings clause or, or a condemnation imminent domain. Because you got to remember, the federal government also engages in tax collection efforts. And so it would be, it, the, the government recognizes that this case uh, could have implications also for the federal scheme, the federal tax collection scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important, I think, that the court uh, draw a, a, narrow, uh, a narrow decision here and resolve the issues uh, in front of the court, but mindful that it can, it can really impact a number of different industries. And then when you start talking about real property and title to real property, uh, as you know from, from our chats in the past, uh, real property issues and title issues, those can stick around for a very long time and, and have just kind of a ripple effect uh, to, to uh, other owners of the property down the chain. So it's something that, that I know the Supreme Court will, will you know, look at very carefully, um, and, and we're hoping that the NTLA and these other, uh, these other parties that are filing amicus briefs will be able to shed some light on how this case can impact more than just the, the parties before the court. Yeah, it's not just the single property and it's not just Minnesota, right? It, it, you know, depending on what they decide to do, it could put every you know tax sale system you know nationwide into a at least a question, right? Do we do we fulfill whatever they say it needs to fulfill? Um, and then also puts every you know single tax lien or tax deed that's sitting out there right now in question of you know was this um, legitimate, you know, is there a chance of having it overturned? I mean, there's, there's a, you know, like you said, they, who knows and depends on what they say, but there's very wide reaching and it's not just isolated to that property, that county, that state, right? That's right. And, and a good point that you make there about um, with Ms. Tyler bringing this as a class action, um, that let's say that the court reverses and says that uh, there's a problem with Minnesota's tax collection scheme. Well, what happens to, to every single tax sale uh, that has occurred in Minnesota um, in, in the same year, uh, in the, or the, not, not the tax sale, but the tax forfeiture that occurred in Minnesota in the same year that Ms. Tyler's uh, uh, tax sale occurred? Um, we don't know what, what would the impact there would be, but uh, you're calling into question the, the title um, that, that may have been sold to somebody else, uh, and, and somebody's uh, house might be sitting on that property now. Um, and so it's a lot more than just just a, a very uh, it, it's not a just uh, a tax sale issue that's kind of a uh, amorphous uh, you know uh, nebulous idea that's out there. Um, it, it has real world implications um, for a lot of different people. Yeah, for sure. Well, what uh, if it's okay with you, Matt? Can we pivot a little bit to you know? You know, NTLA is filing this amicus brief, and, and I guess what is what is the current message that that uh, NTLA is is wanting to um, portray through that amicus brief? Yeah, so so we're planning on filing, and I think our deadline is the the beginning of April. Um, we're still working through uh, some of the arguments, but generally speaking, um, we intend to to file an educational brief uh, rather than rather than advocate strongly for one party over another or, or one uh, uh, specific type of tax sale over another, um, we intend to, to educate the, and hope to educate the court on the different styles uh, of tax sale around the country. 
um, and the, the different trade-offs, uh, the policy considerations that go into adopting and, and enforcing tax collection efforts uh, nationwide. So I, I think it's important, and, and we hope to convey, that uh, all the different uh, legislatures across the country have, have really studied tax collection and how it impacts their citizens, and they've made conscious policy decisions. Uh, to, to do one style over another or to uh, limit uh, the right of redemption to uh, residential properties and not commercial properties. Um, they've also made policy decisions in trying to uh, create um, uh, resources and, and programs that would allow uh, taxpayers who are delinquent um, because they've fallen on some hard times or lost a job or had health issues to be able to apply to avoid being in the tax sale for that year or, or some sort of tax forfeiture. Those are all policy considerations that are, that are really studied uh, by uh, the legislature and implemented because they, they know their citizens best and they know what works best. Um, and so we're hoping to, to explain to the court that uh, it's really tough for, for the court, uh, one sitting in D.C. that doesn't have daily interactions with the people that are impacted most by its decision uh, to then say that one style of tax sale or one method of tax forfeiture over another is uh, is better. So um, in the hopes that the court will see that, um, that there's a, a wide range of, of styles and they can both, uh, they can all be uh, proper under the, the Constitution um, without just looking at, at this one very narrow subset of, uh, uh, of tax sale. Got it. So is it is it safe to say it's kind of, I guess, educating the court on right now it's, it's decided at a state level and maybe it should stay decided at the state level? Is that fair to say? Yeah, to some extent. So, so there are certainly federalism principles at play here um, that the the concept that the, the states are closest to the people and the states are the ones that, uh, you know, their state legislature, legislators, they go home uh, at the end of the week and, and see the people that are in their uh, districts and are impacted by, you know, have daily interactions with the tax assessor or the auditor or the treasurer and tax collector. Um, and they know uh, they've got a better feel for uh, how tax collection impacts uh, their citizens. It, it's harder for um, uh, Congress on the federal level to try and legislate uh, for all those different issues across all those different jurisdictions. And instead, it's, it's better to allow the states to, to make those decisions, certainly within the bounds of the Constitution, um, because the Constitution protects uh, certain rights and provides some guide, uh, guideposts and guardrails um, but the states are taking those into account when they include these notice requirements, include these protections that are available um, if taxpayers will go and seek out those protections, um, and also include uh, uh, you know, rights of first refusal and, and rights to redeem that extend all the way up until that last, absolute last remedy of the, the tax sale or the tax forfeiture. So these are policy considerations that have been weighed, they've been studied, um, they've been uh, changed, uh, I mean, tweaked constantly. Uh, you know from following legislation around the country, I mean, uh, legislators are, are, are writing bills and drafting them to make changes right now as we speak. Um, and so it's best to kind of let that process play out 
and allow those that are that are really studying the issues um, uh, with tax collection and have the most experience and expertise with it to make the make the decisions on uh, how to do those policy trade offs. Excellent. Well, Matt, I, I know there'll be uh, follow up. You know, what's the current status, and then eventually, I, I definitely want to get back on with you to talk. You know, what was the decision? What are the impacts of that decision? You said uh, probably you know midsummer June time frame, but um, as of today, I extremely appreciate your input, Matt. You always have um, uh, say wise words and and uh i think it ntla chose the the best person to kind of put that amicus brief together and and um you know i guess we'll we'll see how this plays out well well, i appreciate that we've we've got a good team here at nelson mullins uh that deals with these issues and and can i mean we're working with i'm working with partners from about four different offices across the country on this um just based on their backgrounds and and the wide uh, variety of experiences they've had with tax sales so we're looking forward to putting a good amicus brief out there. We'd love to come back and discuss how uh, how oral argument went or how the opinion comes down and, and what uh, what your listeners need to, to really be thinking about as far as the, uh, the states that they're investing in and how those states' uh, procedures might change after this opinion. Sounds great. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Matt, for joining. Good luck. We'll talk soon. Thanks.